Welcome to RiskWise, a show about money for Muslims, where you'll learn how to make smarter financial decisions without selling your soul. For the full experience, join us at no cost at RiskWise.com. Assalamu alaikum, Risk Nation. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Ahmed Bunawar, joined as always by my co-host, as much as he doesn't like to hear it, defender <laughs> of common sense, Saeed Ali. Assalamu alaikum. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us again for part two of the Sunnah of Minimalism. Yeah, alhamdulillah. So this is, uh, I thought part one went pretty well. What did you think, Saeed? Yeah, definitely. And I'm looking forward to the second half where we're going to be discussing the examples in the Prophet's life and in the companions' lives. Yeah, and I think this part two is going to be, dare I say it, short and sweet. <laughs> but it's, now, it's, it, that's it. We, it's really simple. It. It's really simple. Let's put it this way. Um, you know, the, the going with the theme of minimalism and simplicity, this episode is going to be fairly minimal and simplistic. Um, and that all we want to do really is kind of show you the example of the quintessential minimalist or the quintessential Zahid, the one who most perfectly embodies this idea of Zuhud that we spent the last episode discussing. And that's, you know, none other than the best example, our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was the, the perfect embodiment of Zuhud, like he is the perfect embodiment of every quality that we aspire to. Right. And he said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said in a hadith that the worldly comforts are not for me. I am like a traveler who takes a rest under a tree in the shade and then goes on his way. Mm. And this hadith is something that we probably all heard uh, a few different times and there's different narrations. But I think this is really one of the this the, the central hadiths that best explains the attitude that a believer should have towards the world. Mm-hmm. Right. The posture that you should have when you live in the world is that of a traveler. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. <laughs> I like that analogy of a traveler because if you've ever gone on a road trip or visited relatives, especially now, if you have to fly somewhere, uh, my wife and I are going uh, to uh, visit uh, one of her friends for her wedding, and you know now you got to pay for every bag you check, right? Right. Like, yeah. like back when I was a kid, everybody got two check bags and a carry on and this and that. Like you could take the whole. Like if it's a week long trip, you're set. But now you got to pay twenty five, thirty five dollars just to check a bag. So in our packing, we're thinking, man. How little can we take <laughs> and still look presentable at this wedding? Because everything that we take is going to cost more money. So traveling requires, and even more so today, traveling requires that you don't carry a ton of stuff. You can't have a ton of everything while you're traveling in this world. Like if you're going on a big road trip, you just can't fit your whole house in your car. Not possible. If you're flying, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to take your whole house. So you've got to pick and choose the few things that really matter. If you're traveling, so I, I like this analogy. I didn't even think of that. That's incredibly powerful. I didn't even think of that that idea of traveling light. Yeah, uh, and it's it's very true. I when my wife and I went on our honeymoon, you know, many moons ago, um, we took one carry on each, and it was that's like, it? yeah, that's it. And it was like a, it was like a you know seven seven eight day trip. You're kidding me. Yeah, people thought we were crazy, right? I mean, it was you know not so much of an accomplishment for me, but you know for. For my wife, it wasn't an accomplishment for her, but people thought it was kind of absurd that how could she only be taking one bag? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the best decision we ever. And we were nervous. We kind of thought, like, well, what if we need stuff? Like, are we taking enough? Is this going to be a big mistake? Are we going to regret it? Because the last thing that you want is to be halfway across the world and wish that you'd brought something with you. Yeah. Right. 
but it was the best decision we made because we were traveled so light when we when we you know going through the airport getting into cabs was easy one bag pop it in the trunk changing hotels everything was so easy packing unpacking it it it, it enabled us to stay lean and to focus on what we were there to do right so i, I, I love that focused analogy. on what you're there to do what do you mean by that well, you know, for example, when you take a lot of stuff and you go to a hotel, right, you're going to spend, you know, a couple hours in the morning unpacking the stuff, right? Yeah. And then you're going to spend another couple hours before you leave packing up before checkout, which is usually, a, you know, it's a, it's a race, right? <laughs> um, and you spend all this time just dealing with this stuff that you've decided to bring with you, whether or not you actually need it. Yeah. So Whether I, or not you, you could have done without it. Whether or not you could have done without it. So I think that's it's a powerful analogy. I never really thought of that. Is in this world we're traveling, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's uh, and we mentioned in the last episode that it's it's a really really brief stop on the spectrum of eternity. The time that we spend in this world is insignificant. It's nothing, right? So why carry all these bags? Why carry all this stuff with us if it's going to hinder our progress? Mm-hmm. The other analogy I really like. Um, following with this hadith is the idea of stopping at a, a rest stop or a service station on the highway. Oh, ew. Okay. What, what, you don't do that? Oh, they're just, I guess, depending on what country and state you're in, they could be nice. Often they're not. Oh, well, that's perfect. You're right. They're, they're usually not very comfortable, right? They're a little bit <laughs> grimy. I find in Canada, they're a little bit nicer than in the States. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry to the U.S. listeners. In the States, they have these welcome centers, like when you enter a new state that are really just very grimy. So I see where you're going with that. But that's perfect, right? When you when you stop at one of these rest stops on your way, you you don't get comfortable. No, oh, yeah. That's not you know, that's not your destination. You're there to do something very specific, right? You're there to often use the facilities, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe get a bite to eat, maybe stretch and rest your legs, you know, whatever it may be, but like you've got a very specific purpose. If you're anything like me and you're really really particular about making good time, on a road trip, <laughs> then you are watching the clock and you're railing on people when they take too much time, right? <laughs> I'm a very frustrating person to travel with, right? Because you want to get there as fast as possible. But that's the yeah. posture, right? Is you don't you don't sit down, you don't relax, you don't uh, start decorating the walls, right? You don't like yeah. you don't make out make out as if that this is the place where you're going to stay because it's not. It's just a stop. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're being taught in this hadith is that that's the same posture, the same attitude that we have to have living in this world is that it's just a stop on our journey. It's not our destination. Do what you need to do, exactly. but no, that's not your destination. This this world is not the destination. And so when we look at the way that the prophet lived his life, we find exactly that. That is exactly how he lived to a T, right? He had very few material possessions. You can, mm-hmm. you can count them on one hand, in fact. He had a, a, a miswak or a tooth stick that he used to brush his teeth and clean his, clean his teeth. He had a leather bag that he'd used to carry things around. He had a mattress and a pillow at home. And he had some simple items of clothing, very often just one or two items of clothing. Very simple clothing. Mm. And in terms of his personal items, that was pretty much it. There wasn't much beyond that, that that's documented anyways. Um, right. And he had some other things that are kind of like had, had you know, other other forms of utility, like he had armor, obviously, for battles. He had an animal to ride um, for transportation and things like that. But everything had a very specific and clear purpose. Right. There was utility in every single thing he owned. And he didn't have anything 
that didn't provide some immediate practical day-to-day utility. So there wasn't really a concept of having stuff in storage for maybe one day I'll use this in 30 years. <laughs> there wasn't storage. <laughs> <laughs> when you're dealing with obviously very small, simple houses that were maybe like one or two rooms, if that. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, people have described the, the, the house of the prophet size sentiments effectively just, you know, you walk in on the one side, you got the bed, you've got a corner where there was some cooking, uh, you know, cooking appliances and, and a little <laughs> prayer niche. And that was it. That was the house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what's interesting is that this is, this was, this was his lifestyle. This is the way that he lived both in times when he had wealth and when he didn't have wealth. Mm-hmm. So it's not that, I mean, the prophet size did choose to live a minimalist life, but it wasn't because he had to. He chose to live this way, right? So when you think about the time in Mecca, for example, where the Muslims were being persecuted and they didn't have much and, and things were, were very difficult, this is how he lived. And then fast forward to Medina, although the early days were quite difficult as well, but then in the latter part of the Medinan period when the Muslim territory had expanded and there was some, not great wealth, but there was some increased wealth coming into the community and the Prophet had access to it, but nothing really changed in terms of his day-to-day life. Right. He didn't take the, the spoils of war and, you know, cash in and live like a king. He gave everything away. Right. Yeah. So the famous story is that he was offered, uh, the Prophet was offered by Allah to be either a king prophet or a servant prophet. And he could have chosen to become a king prophet and he could have had whatever he wanted. And that in no way would have diminished his rank because he's still the best of creation. He's still the prophet of Allah. Mm-hmm. But he chose to be a servant prophet. He chose to do without the dunya to minimize his involvement and his engagements with material possessions because that's how he wanted to live his life. And that's what he's teaching us um, in terms of how we should live our lives. Right. And they say that um, the Prophet never kept anything in his home for himself overnight. So if he had some food or had some provision or had some money, at the end of the day, he'd go and find someone to give it to. Wow. And, and that's for himself, right? So they say he, he may have stored things uh, or kept things for his dependents who are his responsibility. Right. right. That's, okay. that's, that's, that's something different. But for himself, he never kept anything. He always gave it away to those who were in need and, and didn't keep anything for himself. Wow. So that, that, that is, was him. Yeah, that's a very heavy, very, uh, you know, heavy example, right? It's very, very difficult for us to, to look at that and say, yeah, I'm going to do that tomorrow, right? But the embodiment of the spirit of what that, you know, what he embodied that maybe we don't give everything away and live, you know, in a hut somewhere with a car and that's it. Maybe that's not how we manifest this example. But what's very apparent in these examples of the Prophet is that it didn't matter. The stuff that they had, the stuff that the Prophet had didn't matter. It wasn't the goal. It wasn't the yardstick. It wasn't the measuring stick. It wasn't uh, the the thing to be to strive towards all day, every day. Stuff and material possessions. I think that's very, very key in these examples. They're very, you know, lofty goals to try and do something similar to this in, in reality. But the spirit of what he demonstrated, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, is really what we want to communicate. That's I think we can take practical applications from that. Yeah, and we're not going to get prescriptive, obviously. You, know, you do what you have to do, and you live your life in the way that, that, that you can live it best, but clearly he is the example to aspire towards. Right? right. There's a reason why he lived that way, and because that's an example that you need to aspire towards following, and you do that to the best of your ability. What's really interesting beyond that is when we look at the lives of the companions, 
Okay. And and the way that they embodied this this idea of Zohud and minimalism, you know, we find something very similar. Um, we take a look at the likes of Sayyidina Abu Bakr uh, Siddiq, who was actually in the early days of Islam quite wealthy. Mm-hmm. He was known to be quite wealthy. Um, and it was it wasn't until later on that his wealth diminished because he ended up supporting a lot of the Muslims in Mecca when the embargoes were placed upon them and they didn't have much access to, to, to food or money or anything. He ended yeah. up supporting a lot of people. So by the end of the Meccan period, he was actually quite poor. Um, and but what you'll see throughout his life is that he repeatedly, not once, but repeatedly gave away all of his money for the sake of the community. Wow. Earn, give it away. Earn more, become wealthy again, give it away. And and they were serial entrepreneurs in that regard, right? Yeah. And just think about uh, the the idea of the hijrah, right? People didn't take, like, caravans full of stuff on the hijrah. Remember, it was a getaway. (laughs) Yeah. Most people left under the cover of night, and they took only what they could carry, and they minimized the stuff that they took with them on the hijrah because they didn't want to get caught. They were running for their lives, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So they all went to Medina and literally built their lives up from scratch. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous story of the companion who was offered offered wealth, and he said, "No, thank you. Point me to the market. Wow, That's, yeah. I'm going to go and build myself up from there." And he did, and many others did as well. So these were people who were clearly, you know, we mentioned Sayyidina Abu Bakr. There were others who had wealth, Uthman ibn Affan, radiAllahu anhu, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, and there are others who had wealth. But clearly, we can see in their actions. That they had no attachment to that wealth because they could give it up when the call came and there was something to fund, whether it was the Battle of Uhud or it was to support some of the poor people or to, you know, to support some need in the community. They would just give it up and not even hesitate just on a moment. Just boom, it's done. Here you go. Write a check. Well, yeah. so to speak. Right. Right. So that's you know, that's those are just some examples, just some stories of of this idea of zuhud in practice, right? It's not necessarily about what you have or what you don't have. In fact, one of the marks of a zahid, somebody that really embodies zuhud, is that they're content regardless of what they have. Right. So you could be content and have a lot, or you could be discontent and have a little. Yeah. Right? So in, you know, in that case, the one who's content that has a lot is actually better than the one who's discontent and has a little. So the one, so contentment is one of the measurements for for being a zahid, for being a zahid. Sorry, right? Yeah, ex- but, exactly. It's the idea of being content with whatever whatever Allah gives you. If He gives you more, you're content. If He gives you less, you're content. But your attitude or your satisfaction or your happiness or contentment, so to speak, doesn't vary with what you do or don't have. So, th- I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think about how that manifests t- today. You know, if if I'm you know bored on my couch and I just, you know, wander over to Amazon to look for something to buy. Just, I, I, I clearly have no need for something, right? Cause I, it's not like I went there, typed in something and hit buy because I needed it. I'm going there browsing, right? You go to the mall, you browse, you open up flyers, you're browsing. Mm-hmm. That seems like a, a, a good description, like an, an actual description of what discontentment would be like, because if I was content with everything that was in my home and that I had, I wouldn't need to go shopping to buy something else. I'd be content, right? Well, and that whole idea of shopping, I think we're going to get into this, right? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a new idea. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're going to get really, really deep into that word because I love that word. Yeah. I mean, just the, the idea that you go to the mall to look for stuff that you, you, 
you didn't go there because you need it. You just went there to shop. It's it, it's a pastime, right? Yeah. I know I'm really getting into our next episode, but it's, it's really kind of ridiculous, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, that's an embodiment of discontentment. Is that, that's what I'm saying. Is that true? Would you say that? I, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I think that's a fair thing to say. Yeah. I think there's other forces at play here, right? That, you know, kind of societal, cultural forces. There's, you know, a, a consumer culture that's driving us to acquire these things, even though we may be content with what we have. There's other forces that are driving us towards, you know, overconsumption that we have to acknowledge. You know, it's not um, people didn't have malls even, you know, 100 years ago. Yeah. Right? People didn't have Amazon one click <laughs> 10, 15 <laughs> years ago. Right. So there's all these ways that consumption has been very easy that makes the idea of being a minimalist or being content with what you have much more difficult. Yeah. And I, I once saw a quote from a marketer who had said that uh, happy people don't buy stuff. So they're always promising that you'll be happy with this, but it's a lie. Because if you actually were going to be happy with this one thing, you would never buy anything again. And that their job is to get you to buy stuff. So we, they, they seed discontent. And let's, let's get into that a little bit now, because I, one of the reasons why we're talking about this idea of Zuhud and we're comparing it to you know, the minimalist movement that, that's really taking off is because it's really taking off. I mean, this is a really popular idea. If you, if you Google minimalism... You're going to find a lot of blogs and really incredible resources um, by people and for people who have chosen intentionally and purposefully to do with less. Would you find minimalist shopping sites? That'd be ironic. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But, but you're right. If you type in minimalism or, you know, different types of minimalism, Tons and tons and tons of blogs pop up, and they're blogs, not major newspapers, not major magazines. Why? Because mag magazines and newspapers have uh, the like, their job is to get you to buy stuff. They have advertisers to report to, so they can't preach you to stop buying things and to be content with what you have and stop being a consumer. That goes against their own business model. So you only really see it in the small blogs where individuals are talking about it, but it's becoming more popular. The people who are writing about these things are getting hundreds of thousands of views because I think more and more people are waking up to the lie of marketing that stuff will make you happy and it doesn't, never has, never will. But that's the lie that we're being fed constantly, that this thing or that thing will make you happy and now more and more people are realizing how much of a lie that is. So the rejection of that is the life of minimalism, is the life of a Zahid, is the life of being content with what you have now and not needing to pursue more and more stuff. That's so true. Marketers have a word for the phenomenon of, you know, or the feeling rather, of what happens after you make a purchase. Oh, really? It's called cognitive dissonance. That's a psychology term, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, that's the term that's used to describe that feeling after you purchase something and you think, oh, should I have bought that thing? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you're in the store and well, let's take Sayid as an example. Yeah. You're in the store, you're looking at this video game. Um, I'm assuming that's all you buy. Oh my buy. God. You don't <laughs> buy video games in a store. What, right, what, do you, what do you buy then? What do you buy in a store? <laughs> Honestly, nothing anymore. I buy everything online. All right. Anyway. You're on, you're on, where do you buy video games? What site? Steam. Steam. Steam.com. So yeah, Steampower.com. The latest, you know, first person shooter video game, <laughs> you know, Doom, right? Doom, is that still the latest thing? <laughs> okay. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to take over. Because this is getting off the rails real quick. Doom was Doom Let's, was what uh, was popular back in the day when I was when I was Doom, kicking. Doom's <laughs> coming back, but 
you go to st- and, and anybody who plays video games or has a computer that play they, they play video games will understand this feeling. You, you know, you get an email that a Steam sale is on, or there's like three times a year Steam will go on sale, like stuff on Steam will go on sale. And I have like I have this new game that I play um, that I go to Steam literally just to buy stuff <laughs> and not actually play it. It's a really bad habit. Thankfully, it doesn't cost that much money. But you go to SteamPowered.com, you open up that software, and there's just like pages and pages of stuff that's quote unquote on sale. And I like, I talk about this stuff. I read about this stuff. I write about this stuff, but it is still difficult for me to resist when certain games are off on like under $10, under $5. And it's not that I don't have more than a hundred games in my library that I haven't played yet. Cause I do. It's not like I actually need things, need more things to entertain myself with. I have way more than I could probably finish for the rest of my life, given how little time I actually have to play these games, I probably have enough to, for the rest of my life in my library today. But I still load up Steam to go video game shopping. And my thing, Steam, your thing could be Amazon, it could be the mall, could be Flyers. Yeah. So the thing is, you know, we have to acknowledge that there's really, really, really smart people that are designing this experience for you. And they know the way that you think, they know the way you feel, they know what your desires are, they know your weaknesses. And they've crafted a shopping experience that exploits those weaknesses. Mm-hmm. The one thing that really hit me was um, I recently um, blocked Facebook. So I've got like Facebook. I've got software on my computer that blocks Facebook for certain hours of the day, which is most of the day. Um, <laughs> not because I was spending a lot of time on Facebook. I, to be honest, I wasn't. But I just found that whenever I went on Facebook, it was always very unsatisfying. And I just, you know, I, it became a habit. I would just go on Facebook for no reason when I didn't have wasn't really sure what the next thing was to do and I'd waste a few minutes and and then and that was it there was no real point to it and I was reading Zen Habits which is a great blog and he he was talking about how he blocked Facebook and and what he said was that you have to realize that they are there are very highly trained psychologists at Facebook you know what does a PhD in psychology do where do they work and probably an ad agency and now a social media network right yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that they are highly paid psychologists the smartest in the world and all they do their job is to design an experience that is addictive, right? that you can't leave, that keeps you coming back over and over and over again because the more eyeballs that they get, the more views they get, the more time you spend on Facebook, the more that you're going to click on ads and the more that drives their revenue. And when you think about that, these are the smartest psychologists in the world work at Facebook and they're building experience that's trying to keep me hooked. I can't compete with that. Right. That's humbling to admit, don't you think? But for me? Yeah. Like for anybody, I mean, whether it's Facebook or you're shopping or anything else, to admit that you are not in 100% control of your decisions, that other people control you through the way they design what happens in your life. From how a grocery store is set up, like we all know this now, right? Like the stuff that you need is very far from each other. Bread and milk are very far because they want you to walk through the store, right? Malls have kiosks and stuff. They have uh, very uh, attractive items in the front of the store to draw you in. Uh, nice lighting, music, things that attract the kind of person they're looking for. Uh, if you ever do shopping on any website, Amazon or anything else, they're tracking what you looked at, how long you're looking at it, and then they're going to show you and email you stuff that's like what you just looked at to get you to come back and buy, right? That, that, that's not accidental, all of those processes, there's a lot of very, very intelligent people testing and designing different ways to get you to buy more. And to acknowledge that it's working on you, that you're not immune of that from that, is humbling, but it's real. 
And that's that's the first step, right? Is that we got to acknowledge that this is difficult. It's the idea of being a Zahid, being a minimalist, doing without the world. It's very difficult because there's all these things, uh, all these forces that are pulling you away from that. So you can, you know, in principle and in theory, you can say, yeah, I want to live like this. I want to be a minimalist. I don't want to take on too many possessions or take on too much of the overhead of the world. But then to go out and to do that and to live in the world and expose yourself to its many appeals and, and, and be able to stay strong on that, uh, on that mission is very difficult. And well, that's why we're talking about this, and that's why we hope to—that's what we hope to expand on going forward. Because we, as Muslims, I think we need to be at the forefront of that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not right now. We're kind of, uh, you know, very young, I guess, in our modern-day development. But this an, an anti-consumption mindset has to exist in the back or the front of every Muslim's mind today, especially with the way the world is, you know, with overconsumption and sweatshop labor and slave labor even really that exists today. Like the stuff that we buy, many things from clothes to electronics to almost everything that we own having an element of exploitation. And, and Muslims, we should be at the forefront of rejecting exploitation and oppression. And all of those things, I mean, I don't want to get too spiritual, right? But I mean, those have an effect on you. If you, you know, if you're wearing clothes that are made in some sweatshop, and that person who 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 made the clothing was wrong, that they were oppressed. I mean, that has implications. Yeah, if you don't feel for that, you know, may Allah help you. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you don't feel for that person in that situation. So anyhow, that's that's the whole point of this. We're gonna we're, you know we wanted to root this conversation in the Sunnah of minimalism, the Sunnah of of zuhud, and to really help people understand where we're coming from and and why this is such an important ideal in our tradition. And going forward, we're gonna explore the different ways that you can kind of chart this path and the benefits of this path. You know, not only from a from a sal- salvific perspective, but also just from a really practical day to day life perspective. Right. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. I'm never, ever, 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 ever again going to say that we're going to keep it short and sweet because it never happens. When I, I knew that. you jinxed it yeah. as soon as you said it. I know, I know. Anything to add? No, just uh, if you're on iTunes listening to us, please give us a rating, an honest one. Uh, whatever you think of the show, please let, let us know through that rating system. Helps other Muslims find the show and inshallah they can benefit from it. Um, also, if you are not getting Ahmed's emails on the, uh, the RiskWise email list, you're missing out on a good chunk of the benefit of our podcast and what we're trying to talk about. Uh, Ahmed summarizes the lessons and, and draw and uh, qu- provide some questions that the episode will address. So if you're not getting those emails, you're kind of missing out, uh, please uh, sign up over at www.riskwise.com. I think that's it. Sounds good. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. And thank you, Saeed, again. And we'll talk next time. Inshallah. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.